What's up, everybody? Welcome back into the TMT podcast, a production of Arnold and Porter. I'm your host, one of the TMT co-chairs here, Evan Rothstein. And today I have an extra special guest who also happens to be my boss, so I promise to be on my best behavior. I, of course, I'm talking about the head of our IP group, Matt Wolf. Matt, how are you today? Great, Evan. How are you doing today? Doing great. And we have you in because just last week, of course, the Minerva Surgical versus Hologic argument at the U.S. Supreme Court occurred, and you were the star of the show for Hologic arguing about a doctrine called a sinor estoppel. But before we get into that, Matt, what I really want to know and what I want to talk about first is how do I say a sinor? Do I focus on the ass or on the nor? And this was a, a debate online that I know you took part in, so I'd love to get your comments on how do I pronounce it? So it, it appears to be a tomato tomato situation. Uh, if you are um, a run of the mill American, you pronounce it a signer. If you are a pompous muckety muck like me, you pronounce it asinor. Both are acceptable. Uh, someone noted that after uh, I pronounced it differently than the government and the other side did. At some point, the justices became reluctant to use the word, I think, for fear that they would be accused of mispronunciation. Uh, but it turns out, I think, if you go online, uh, you'll find both in those various uh, pronunciation guides. So this is one of those win-wins. We're all right. So you used it in the the British version, Asinora like Yeah, it just it, it just sounded more supreme or something. I don't know. That's the way I was taught uh, how to use it. And whoever taught me, I'll blame them if they're wrong. I like to think that it's the old pronunciation, pronunciation since it's an old doctrine, or as your uh, worthy opponent said in the Supreme Court, a doctrinal dinosaur. Perhaps both of you are correct in that regard. That's, that's true. I, I asked my children, all of whom were um, aficionados of dinosaurs growing up, whether they had ever heard of a doctrinal dinosaur. Uh, and they were, uh, they were um, unaware that such a thing existed until the argument, but whatever. I think most of us were unaware of it. I actually saw some of your uh, back and forth with Dennis Crouch, and he said he asked his teenage daughter how to pronounce a sign or a sapo, and she said it's like Uranus, which <laughs> I, I thought was the best comment I've seen. I didn't even know exactly what that meant. Uh, it was, and, and by the way, it's Uranus, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's for the next podcast. All right, Matt. Well, let's get into it a little bit. What tell us? Tell our listeners what is a signer estoppel. Uh, it's a simple concept, really, at its heart. The notion is, uh, I invent uh, something and get a patent on it, or file for a patent application on it, and uh, I transfer it to you. Maybe I'm your employee. Maybe I'm a competitor, uh, uh, and I transfer my patent to you. Uh, the next day or the next year, uh, I decide I want to do the thing that I transferred to you, and you sue me for patent infringement. Uh, and I turn around and say, that thing I sold you, that thing I transferred to you, remember that patent that you bought or acquired? Uh, it's worthless. It's invalid. And the doctrine, which has been around for hundreds of years, says you can't do that. Uh, if you transfer uh, a patent to someone, uh, you can't then later say that what you sold was worthless. And that was the position we were taking, that that doctrine should be maintained. The other side's position was, no, uh, it's more important we get rid of bad patents. And so even if it's 
distasteful that someone that sold you a patent can then say what they sold you was a piece of trash. We're going to let them do it. So that's what the fight is about. And thanks for that, Matt. And I, I hear that the government was somewhere in the middle, and that's maybe where most of the questions from the justices focused on. Why is this important? Why should we care about this as lawyers or as, as industry? You know, that's an interesting question. And um, probably the best evidence that people do care was the amicus activity surrounding it. Uh, there were a dozen amicus briefs, including from just about every major trade group and lawyer group out there. Uh, and the reason uh, people care is that every year there are roughly 100,000 patent assignments. Uh, and it, they are frequently in the context of some of the biggest business deals out there. And if the inventor uh, can, or the, uh, the assigner, and frequently it's the same entity, um, can after sell it to you, go into a courtroom and say, yeah, that's not what I invented. Uh, that's not what I thought I was doing. Uh, you've just destroyed the value of what the purchaser bought. And so it matters to every tech company out there. And that's why we saw BioA in, we saw Pharma way in, we saw IPO way in, we saw the AIPLA way in. So lots of people care because there's a lot of money at stake. So I understand, Matt, in, in this case, Mr. Trukai, and that, that was a pronunciation I think everyone agreed on, had received quite a bit of compensation, maybe around $8 million for his assignment of the patent uh, to Hologic. Uh, before he started Minerva. How does this doctrine apply when you have an employee who has assigned all of her inventions to a company as just in the course of an employment and then perhaps leaves and starts a new company and then gets sued by uh, the person that her past company assigned it to, but she didn't receive, like in this instance, $8 million. How would yeah, the doctrine a, apply? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me start just by not correcting, but um, completing the story. Oh, you, can, you can correct me all you want. That's, it's a podcast. This is, this is uh, you don't have to show me any deference like you did in the Supreme Court. Yeah, I respect you too much to correct you, at least in public. Uh, Hologic actually paid $325 million to acquire the rights. It was Chukai's personal stake of $8 million. So when we say there's a lot of, a lot of money at stake, the, the other shareholders, the other founders of the company got the rest of the cash. Uh, so it, it was... It, you know, a third of a billion dollars went into this. And so that's why my client cared. Um, you asked the question about the employer-employee situation, and that really troubled some of the justices and some of the Amici, where there is um, a greater distance between the person that invented and the folks that will ultimately exploit and potentially sell the invention. And, and that is a harder question. That is a closer call as as certainly the government argued uh, and others have suggested that when you have uh, a line employee doing run-of-the-mill R&D, whose R&D ends up in a patent application, perhaps even unbeknownst to them, or they just see a, a piece of paper fly in front of them, uh, and then they go work for someone else, at what point is it no longer fair to say that that's someone else they're going to work for uh, can't, can't uh, practice that technology? So it's it's a closer call, um, but we think that this is a clear situation where the corner case shouldn't destroy the rule. So if we're reading tea leaves, Matt, that, you know, looks like there's maybe three scenarios. The, the judges, the justices kick it out entirely. 
they keep it as is or they do something in the middle, which I think is where the government stood. Where, based on your take on the questions you were getting and your where the opponents were getting, where do you think this thing comes down? I have no idea, and I'm not just saying that to be coy. Uh, there were three camps, as you noted, although they, they were in... Camp number one was get rid of the doctrine entirely, and there were a couple justices that appeared to be there. Camp number two was uh, the middle ground, and there were a couple justices that seemed to be there. The third camp was uh, made up of some folks who seemed to appreciate the administrative simplicity of the doctrine and understood its underpinnings. And then there were other justices uh, who um, were troubled either by the starry decisis implications or why isn't this Congress's problem? There was at least one justice that seemed pretty clearly to view the whole discussion as not appropriate for the court and one that should be addressed by the legislative branch. Which justice was that? Uh, I, uh, at, at, at the risk of ascribing motive, there was uh, one justice who didn't ask some very pointed questions of the other side and none of me. Uh, and those that care can go back and look. But All right, uh, that, That's the politically yeah. correct answer. I was just Thank making you. sure you were towing the company line there, Matt. Thank you. I, I'm doing my best here. You're, you're a trenchant questioner, so I got to be careful. <laughs> Trying to trip you up. Not, not like the justice is. It's a lot easier, easier on the podcast. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we, I guess we're going to get a decision sometime by the end of June. Is that right? That's right. We're, we're thinking mid to late June um, is the, the time frame. Last year, um, they stretched out into July because of COVID, so it's possible it'll be in July, but they're doing better this year, and so we expect in June. All right. Well, maybe we may have to get you back on here to break down the decision once it comes in. But before we do that, before we get off, Matt, the things that I want to get into now is things that our listeners are probably most interested in, which is the, as you would probably call it, inside baseball or the background on what goes into a Supreme Court argument. Because there's a lot of things that day-to-day lawyers like myself and people that aren't even lawyers don't know and don't see behind the scenes of what it takes to actually argue in front of the Supreme Court. So I'm hoping you may be able to tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Sure. So there are a a couple things that may not be immediately apparent to someone that hasn't gone through this before. One is uh, that there are conversations with the government uh, where uh, effectively it, it feels like a moot court, a mock argument with, and in our case, multiple government agencies at different times where they are, um, pressing both sides to help them formulate an opinion. And if, and if the government weighs in with an amicus brief, obviously the court takes it very seriously. So you in turn have to take these moots and mocks very seriously. So it's, I think it would surprise folks that there are, in our case, I think there were four separate conversations with different government agencies, entities, as they formulated the positions they were going to take first for the brief and then for argument. So that was challenging and fun. At one point, we had 20 government lawyers taking shots at us. I'm sure the other side did as well. Uh, Some of them were really compelling, and some of them were kind of trivial. The other, When does, I'm sorry sorry to interrupt you there, Matt, how does the, how does the government get asked to argue? What, what is behind that? So they actually have to do the asking. So when uh, CERT gets granted, the Solicitor General's office decides whether there is a US government interest in the outcome of the case. Uh, If there is, 
they will put together an amicus brief. Uh, and then the question is, do they feel strongly enough about it to want time at argument? And if they do, they actually have to move, uh, they, they call both sides, say, can we steal some of your time? And of course, no one is so, um, so foolish as to say, no, you don't get any of my time. Um, and then the government turns around and moves to the court to, to be able to speak at argument, to have a place at the table. And typically it's granted, but not always. Sometimes the case isn't deemed important enough or they don't think the, gov the, the court doesn't think the government's interest is strong enough. But in this case, within five minutes of getting the request for argument, it was granted. So that's, that's that process. So did you have to give up? Because the, the argument, I thought, actually went longer than I would have predicted. Do both sides have to take a certain amount of time allotted to each of you and the government gets that time? That's exactly what it, right. So the government asked for five minutes from each of us uh, for 10 minutes, but then I think they were up there for uh, Morgan Ratner, who did a terrific job on behalf of the government. Uh, I think she was up there for 25 minutes. So they ended up keeping her, keeping her talking for longer than you normally would. And of course, in the COVID era, when the approach is not the normal free for all, but the justice by justice approach to questioning, uh, if you don't give her a little extra time, then some justice or another isn't going to get to ask any questions. And of course, um, they all want to ask the question. And that justice by justice approach you just mentioned, I was noticing when I was listening to the argument that it, it goes from the chief and then by order of seniority on the court. Am I right on that? That's exactly right. Uh, and that simplifies one of the most challenging problems uh, that a Supreme Court order typically faces, which is in the normal free-for-all context when justice A interrupts justice B, and so you have a question inside a question, it is uh, sometimes the most challenging part of the day to figure out whose question do you answer first. Is there a, you know, normally you go with the first question first, but if there's a sufficient delta in seniority, uh, you're, you are expected to answer the second question first. If Roberts interrupts Barrett, you make sure to answer Roberts' question before Barrett's question. And because you were doing this out of the office, so to speak, you don't you didn't face that in this particular. That, that was uh, one one hurdle not uh, not needing to be cleared. All right, and it's all right. Sorry to interrupt you on this, but keep going. I, I want to hear more about like behind the scenes, how what went into making this actually happen. Uh, yeah. So then there's of course the whole other uh, round of mocks, which are uh, the what you would normally do in an oral argument. But what's interesting is that they're institutional mockers, as it were. Uh, who handle Supreme Court. And the preeminent one, or one of the preeminent ones, is the Georgetown Supreme Court Institute, uh, which is just a spectacular organization. Uh, they only do one side or the other in, in, in certain cases. And if uh, you're fortunate that they select you, uh, they put together a terrific mock program. In our case, they brought five justices, as it were, from, you know, one was a Georgetown professor, two were uh, uh, leading uh, Supreme Court practitioners, the head of Supreme Court groups of our of our colleagues at other firms. Another one was from industry. Uh, so you get uh, a really diverse, interesting, sophisticated, uh, motivated uh, group of mock uh, judges, justices in this case. Uh, and and the only payment is that you agree that you'll act as a mock justice at some point in the future. So it's the Supreme Court community helping each other out. And of course, Georgetown law students can listen in. And that's, I think, why Georgetown does it, obviously, is, is for the pedagogical value, but for the practitioners, it's a 
it's an absolutely indispensable, terrific program. How often do you go in front of them? Do you do a couple mark arguments and you get feedback or is it sort of on the fly? You do one, uh, they'll, they'll sit for one session because they do it for you know, multiple arguments per Supreme Court sitting. So we had to organize our own internal mocks as well, but that was, so we did our, we did the government approach, then our own internal mocks, and then we capped it off with the Georgetown mock, which was just a couple of days before the actual argument. And that was, that was the dress rehearsal. That was the one where we tried to get everything right. So the first couple of minutes of every one of these podcasts, I have a panic attack about whether or not my microphone or earphones are going to work. I imagine the uh, panic or concern doing a on the telephone argument before the United States Supreme Court quite rightly trumps that. Uh, what were some of the other things before the argument that you were trying to prepare for or cover for to make sure that everything was going to go smoothly? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. So uh, originally, uh, so there you get rules, you get a you get a booklet that tells you what your audio setup should look like and what the minimum requirements are and and you, you needs to be hardwired. So I went into the conference room I would have expected to go into uh, right next to my office uh, to test it out. And first thing I noticed is there was an ambulance going by every uh, 30 seconds and you could hear the person uh, selling hot dogs on the street corner. So that wasn't gonna work. So we ended up moving into an internal conference room, uh, which actually will lead into at some point a story about the picture that ended up on SCOTUS blog. Uh, oh yeah, internal, I'm, I'll be getting there. Thank you for the uh, foreshadowing. Yes, an internal uh, internal conference room, and then uh, folks at the court actually do a test run with you. They call you, they pick a specific time, uh, and they do a test drive, and they tell you uh, how it sounds and what you need to do. And so, in our case, we had to tweak the the uh, the internal acoustics because duplexing is an issue. Um, so they, they, they do that and make sure that quality control is up for everybody. And then you get a second call from the merits clerk uh, to run through all of the, you can think of it like the, the mismanners of uh, the Supreme Court to make sure you know uh, what to do and not to do and, and how it's going to go and you know, don't interrupt the judge, that kind of stuff. So there are multiple sessions with the Supreme Court itself in anticipation of the argument to make sure that to the general public, it sounds good and you don't make an ass out of yourself, which hopefully I didn't do. Are you sure it's not a signer or is it a signer? Yeah, well, yourself? so that's interesting because they didn't raise the prospect of mispronunciation in any of those preliminary <laughs> calls and perhaps they should have. And, and like I said, I, I don't know whether I made an ass out of myself or, well, you get the point. I don't think, I don't think either. I listened to it. I think you did. Uh, Terrific job. All right. I want to talk about the drawing that you just mentioned on the SCOTUS blog website in this internal conference room. So if you would, for me, set the scene of what it was like actually in the room as you were doing this. Who is there? What do you have in front of you? What's on the wall? Did you wear your lucky underwear? How did it go? All right. So this actually starts about a month ago when I get uh, an email from the uh, official Supreme Court artist. You know, when you watch the news and there's some case about gun control or abortion rights or whatever is leading off the news, and you see the image of uh, a justice questioning, this is the guy that does it. And of course, in COVID, you're not in court for him to take the sketch. So he emailed in advance and said, I would like one of your colleagues to take a picture of you during the argument. 
that will then be used as the official sketch of the argument. So, okay, fast forward in the room. Uh, I, there are two of my partners who you know, Jennifer Squinar, who's uh, co-chair of the IP group with me, and then Stanton Jones, who's a senior member of our Supreme Court practice. And then also uh, uh, Bill Perdue, who's another senior person in the Supreme Court practice. So they're all in the room with me. Uh, Jennifer takes the picture at some point. Uh, when the picture comes out, uh, given that it's just an interior conference room, not my office, and given that every other picture that he sent as a sample had knickknacks and American flags and pictures with presidents and the like, because uh, most people were doing it from their apparently quieter offices, I looked stark and bleak and boring. Uh, and I wrote him and said, I know this probably um, is not kosher, but you, it, my boys would really get a kick out of it if you were to superimpose the Ravens picture from my office onto the wall of the conference room. And so the picture you saw is actually something from my office. He, uh, we used a little CGI to get the effect. It, look, that, that is the type of thing that people will hopefully turn into this podcast for. I love that. So you have a doctored Supreme Court <laughs> image with the Ravens photo. That's incredible. That was the first thing I noticed when I pulled up the blog and I was reading their breakdown of, of the case. That's, that's incredible. So, yeah, And the Baltimore Ravens also noticed. I got an email from the director of, I'm a PSL season ticket holder, and I got an email a couple days later from uh, one of their uh, front customer facing people saying, hey, we saw this. This is great. Thanks. Um, but no offers of Super Bowl tickets or anything like that. So just, <laughs> just a thank you. But it still it got noticed and that's worth something. No, no offer like flipping the coin on the opening day. I mean, that's what you should be angling for. That's exactly right. Uh, maybe to read out the first pet draft pick tomorrow night. That didn't happen. Well, that's that's awesome. So I hear about this thing called the quill that you get when you argue at the Supreme Court. Tell us what that is, and are you going to get one of those? I've been told I'm going to get one, but I have yet to see it. When you argue your first time, you get a quill pen to to uh, to memorialize, but I I have yet to see it. So I'm wondering whether. Uh, the tradition has been abandoned in telephonic times. I, I don't think so. I think it's just the U.S. mail has been delayed, uh, ironically, in part because of Supreme Court decisions, but that's a different issue entirely. All right, I got one last question for you before we got to sign off, Matt. How did you yeah. sleep the night before? Uh, poorly, uh, but I, I, I actually got to sleep at, you know, 1030 thinking, you know, this is great. I'm going to, you know, this will be good. I'll get a decent night's sleep. Uh, and woke up at one in the morning with your classic, uh, my alarm clock isn't working nightmare. Uh, and then of course did not get back to sleep. So I caught up on probably six old episodes of Harley Quinn, the animated series on HBO Max. Uh, I, I, there, I don't think there were any Joker references in my argument, but that's, that's what I did between roughly 2.30 and 5.30 in the morning of my argument was watch, uh, uh, watch uh, Harley Quinn. All right. Well, I, that's awesome. And I lied. I have another question. Was there yes, anything sir. that you had written down or in your notes in your preparations that you, other than your, your opening and your closing remarks, which I know are somewhat rehearsed, was there anything you were adamant that you were going to have to say, no matter what you wanted to get it out as part of the argument? Uh, yeah. So at one point, the, the other side had, uh, and, and the government for that matter, had suggested um, that the holding in the 1924 case that was kind of the centerpiece of this argument 
uh, and you can hear now the ambulance in the background, probably, which is what chased me. I can look. It's almost like you set it up, but I like it. it. I'm keeping it. Yeah, it's it's perfect timing. Uh, This is what would have been on the tape. So anyway, the 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 the, um, there was an argument that it was dicta, and it's it's an argument that's just not true. And there's actually a pretty clever reason why it wasn't dicta beyond the fact that they spent three pages on it. So it wasn't, you know, kind of back of the hand anyway. And Justice Gorsuch uh, asked me uh, whether it was dicta or said it was dicta. And I responded in a, in, emphatically, I could not uh, disagree with, I, I, I don't remember my exact words, but I think I, I think I said, I strenuously disagree with your premise uh, and was all set to launch into my very clever explanation of why it wasn't dicta and he was not having it and wanted to move on and didn't really care that I strenuously disagreed with him at all. Uh, but what would you expect with, uh, from a Georgetown prep guy? <laughs> all right, well, I'm gonna get a t-shirt made for when we do this podcast. After the decision comes out, I'm gonna have a doctrinal dinosaur on the front, I think, and maybe I strenuously disagree with that premise on the back and I'll send you a, a version, Matt. We can both be wearing them. That sounds awesome. And I, I got to say, nice job. Mark Marinch watches back. I think you're, uh, you're on his heels. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Matt. This has been great. Really appreciate you spending the time with us. Hopefully you get some rest uh, and the client's happy. And we were all very proud of your argument. I think you did a terrific job. So thanks, Evan. Thanks. Uh, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.